Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Reflections. It's a common misapprehension that science provides clear and unchanging answers But what it does provide is a clear and vigorous methodology to answer questions. Here's an extract from an article on the Naked Scientist website by Kate Arney. How do we know it's true? In its purest form, the scientific method is a kind of question and answer game. You come up with an idea or a hypothesis which asks the question, all people who carry gene X have disease Y. Then do the research to either prove or disprove your idea. You screen lots of people for gene X and see if they have the disease or not. Your hypothesis may just be a wacky idea or it may be based on observation. Once you've proved or disproved your hypothesis, you've moved forward the frontiers of science. That's all well and good. But when it comes to interfaith relations and community engagement, the sort of thing we do at the Wolf Institute, outcomes are much more difficult to measure. As Albert Einstein said in a nod towards the spiritual, which fascinated him almost as much as science, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts can be counted. Does interfaith work is the question we're asking today, timely because the UK is marking Interfaith Week, celebrated at this time of year since 2009. And here with some answers are Dr. David Hampshire, Assistant Director of the Interfaith Network, and Dr. Kitty Alone, Research Fellow and Manager of Outreach here at the Wolf Institute. Kitty, have you come up with a hypothesis for assessing the impact of interfaith dialogue that approximates to the scientific method? If you want to apply sort of the most scientific method that's possible, then you could do something like randomised control trials, for example, or you could do a control group and an experimental treatment group, where one group gets the dialogue intervention and the other group doesn't, and then you measure the difference between them on various variables of interest. That's not always possible in interfaith dialogue. So what has also become apparent during my research is that it's not always possible to take experimental standards and apply them directly to real-world interactions. It is if you have a controlled laboratory setting and you have participants, then you can control very tightly the variables of interest. But that's not possible always in real world scenarios like interfaith dialogue projects. So in that case, you sort of have to adapt and try and relinquish this sense of control that you get as a social psychologist. Really just 
a combination, I think, of qualitative and quantitative methods are the way forward in assessing impact of innovative dialogue. I think there's a real danger of making a category mistake. And I think that the idea that we can use methodologies which are appropriate to natural sciences, which can be applied in a laboratory setting, as you've alluded to, actually misses the point when it comes to things which are essentially social in character, because I think we're asking a different set of questions. And I do know that, you know, certainly in terms of social science approaches, there are positivistic approaches that can be used, which would concur with the more what may be seen here as a scientific methodology. But I think on the whole, they have been doomed to fail. And partly because there are so many variables, I think that's one of the the issues. But I also think it's missing the point. To give a sort of an example of what I mean, you could ask the question of me, have I been a successful male? That's an interesting question. From a biological point of view, I have more than a fistful of children. So I've, you know, biologically, I've handed on my genetic inheritance to the next generation. And now they're sprouting their own children. So at least I've got two generations of my genotype going down this, this biologically as a male. This is a real sign of success. Am I a successful human being? Am I a successful husband? Am I a successful father? That's a very different sort of a question because that's not something that's easily quantifiable. In order to be able to answer that question, we'd have to have a model to which we're working. And therefore, I think when we're looking at interfaith interventions, if we're looking at dialogue, I think we need to have a sort of teleological approach. Asking the question, what was he aiming to do? Now, it might have done something different, which was even better. It might not have achieved what it was setting out to do. But I don't think what you can do is take away the intention of the dialogue and evaluate it. You have to be able to ask what the intention was. And it could be because, in fact, there's no such thing as interfaith. Interfaith, in a sense, describes a family of activities. It's not one single thing. And dialogue itself is not one single thing. It's much more complex than that, whether that's dialogue between religious leaders at one level or people on the ground, you know, in small communities on another level. They are different, not necessarily better or worse. They're just different. Well, you've sort of touched upon one of the major struggles that I had with the Motions of Success project, which was it immediately became apparent that there's no way you could have a one-size-fits-all approach to measuring success of interfaith dialogue for the reasons that you've mentioned. I mean, first of all, interfaith dialogue encompasses a very broad spectrum of activities, everything from, like you said, you know, high-level diplomacy through to grassroots arts projects. Um, So how on earth are you supposed to develop one methodology that fits all of these disparate types of, of dialogue and it's not possible but what is possible I think is to really focus on the question of what do we mean by success and I think that's the key because what is success in interfaith dialogue is it just you have 10 people that turn up every week and that's successful in a very crude sense yes I would say that is some measure of you know success that you manage to even get participants to attend but the people that are sort of involved in interfaith dialogue and, and I'm sure Please correct me if I'm wrong, David, but people, from my experience at least, people involved in interfaith dialogue very much are of the belief that interfaith dialogue 
has effects that transcend the dialogue project itself. So it's more than just we run a project, people have a change of attitudes towards a different religious outgroup and they go home and forget all about it. Otherwise, what's the point? There is this assumption that these positive effects that are, are garnered in a dialogue situation, whatever that type of dialogue may be, goes on to influence change in the broader community. So what I became interested in for the Measures of Success project was, well, we seem to have all these different levels of, of success. So on one level, you've got sort of people who are interested in noting or tracking attitudinal changes in people who are involved in a dialogue you know do they revise their beliefs about their own religious identity for example but as I said there's this assumption that these changes have an impact in the community as well so that leads us up to the next level of what you might determine the domain of success which is the community level and here this is where I think it gets quite interesting because you've got to account you've got to articulate the mechanisms by which positive changes in a dialogue transfer to the broader community. And that is not easy. And it's something that I think social psychology can answer quite well. It can articulate the mechanisms that underlie this process of transfer. What they are at the moment is, is very much an open question. And that's why it's exciting. This is why interfaith dialogue impact is really sort of a ripe area of research at the moment. Kitty, you've mentioned the Measures of Success project. I gather there's some kind of toolkit that's part of that? Yes. So the main outcome of the Measures of Success project was the development of a toolkit for interfaith practitioners at sort of the grassroots level to help them approach this very complicated process of evaluation. And it leads us back to the F word funding. So for a lot of local interfaith organisations, funders want evidence of impact. And this can be very hard to do if you've never done an evaluation before, if you have no idea what is of interest. So what we've tried to do with this toolkit is provide a step-by-step user-friendly guide for people in that position to offer them, if you like, a guiding hand through the first-time process of evaluation. And the toolkit will be launched live on our website, available to all in Interfaith Week. There is a sort of an assumption, a cultural assumption for us, that structural change leads to cultural change and I think that we we need to challenge that assumption that just because we have structures in place therefore culture itself will change I think is something that's not proven but I do think that depending on what type of interfaith dialogue you're looking at and what its context is I think there is a sense that actually what we are doing here will have an impact more widely But in order for that to happen, there has to be some type of communication about what's going on. That having that sense of raising the awareness of what you're doing, why it's important and significant, and what you're expecting to see as a result of that. And I think that, in a sense, that's the challenge, because I'm not necessarily sure that all forms of dialogue do see themselves as having a broader impact because what they might be doing is dealing with a particular situation at a particular time and then that project itself may take on a life further and beyond. Let's go to the individual. What kind of change is necessary and maybe this this feeds into your research Kitty that results in changing behavior? Can you identify that? Well the assumption is of course that attitudes lead to behavioral change and whether that's entirely true is a point of contention, but it's generally assumed that improving attitudes will have some impact on behaviours 
down the line. So when I did the preliminary research for the Measures of Success project, I had a really interesting series of interviews with interfaith practitioners. And I basically just asked them what they considered to be success in terms of interfaith dialogue. And the majority of them all said that for them, success in interfaith dialogue involves some kind of psychological change in the participants. This could be, for example, attitudinal changes or breaking down very sort of black and white type thinking regarding the other. But also there was an interest in success involves some kind of critical reflection on one's own religious faith or one's own religious identity. Um, And that was quite interesting. That's not something that I'd, I'd ever sort of encountered before in any of the previous interfaith work that I'd done. It's always been improve attitudes towards another religious group. But I found this idea of sort of self-reflection and uh, identity formation in the individual very interesting. I think that there are projects that you could look to and say, look, actually, there was something going on here and a result of that change has happened. And I'm thinking they're not members of the Interfaith Network, but it's a project called AXAF based in Slough. It was created, you know, because of the tensions and at times violence between Muslim and Sikh communities there. And that project has now taken on a life of its own. And it's doing some fantastic work of bringing young people from different communities together to actually meet each other, to collaborate and to develop a greater sense of what it means to live in that place and at that time. And there are other projects that have been done as well. I think the Near Neighbours Project of the Church of England, I think has seen some real success and I think has been quite you know, well evaluated over time. But I do think that we have to recognise that there are high levels of fragility as well at times. Not here, I would say, at the moment, but I often reflect back on the Bosnia-Herzegovina before the Bosnian War, you know, where communities were intermarried, integrated, and within a very short space of time, that all fell apart in the most horrendous ways. So I think one of the things with interfaith, it's not that actually we can ever say we've, we've done the job. Because I think it is about recognising that we need to carry on with those conversations. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Kitty Alone and David Hampshire. Our question this week, does interfaith work? Interfaith and multiculturalism are not the same things, of course, but they are related. Here's the sociologist Tarek Modoud speaking on the show, reflecting on multiculturalism. Multiculturalism begins to be very controversial with the satanic versus affair, because here you begin to have a group of people who begin to say, we are being disrespected in this society by a book that we find thoroughly offensive and unacceptable, and there is no law or policy or institution that we can refer to to protect us from this humiliation. Up to then, it was a lot happier. You know, slappy, clappy, saris, samosas, steel bands, and so on. One of the questions I have for both of you, actually, um, is the challenge and the accusation that interfaith dialogue is simply an echo chamber, that we're speaking with like-minded people. Is, is that a fair criticism? I think it can be, because in a sense, all dialogue is a sort of a coalition of the willing. But I do think that it is not simply that. And I do think that we have seen 
particularly behind the scenes work with groups that wouldn't necessarily talk to each other. They have been brought together in order to be able to talk. But what you need to do is you need to have a process where you build people's trust in each other so that actually when you go into a dialogue, you feel that you are going to be listened to and respected and you are ready to offer that to others. In our Let's Talk guide, one of the things that we did quite a lot of within the guide is, is how do you go about setting up a dialogue? You just don't want people sitting over tea discussing the same things and feeling good about it. You want to look at some of those issues that are really affecting communities. And I think that's really important. Yeah, I think I'd agree with you, David. I think it can be just sort of the um, tea and samosas model where people just sort of sit around and say, oh, you know, isn't this lovely? And then they go home and nothing sort of impactful ever happens. But I think that's an unfair criticism to level all interfaith work because there are some really profound changes going on. And um, David, you mentioned Near Neighbours um, previously, and they are, for me, a prime example of an interfaith organisation that really is engaging with difficult issues in the community. And Again, as, as part of the research for the project that I've been working on, I did um, a tour of the UK, if you like, to all the different near neighbours um, hubs. And one of the things that came through very clearly was that on the ground, there is an appetite for people to engage in difficult, controversial topics. They want more than just sitting around having a cup of tea and a cake and saying, oh, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Jew, how lovely. They actually want to engage with, with these difficult issues. But as David said, to be able to do that, you really have to build this foundation of trust. And for me, Near Neighbours is a perfect example of somebody who does that very well. So it sounds like you're both focusing on the grassroots. So in this interfaith world, should we be thinking less about the Pope meeting the Grand Mufti and more about the local priest meeting local faith leaders? I'd say we need both. You know, you can't undervalue or underestimate the impact of the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, meeting a leader from a different faith. You know, there's no way of knowing how many individuals he will have reached by that. Um, How many Catholics will have seen him shake hands with, you know, a senior rabbi, for example. So yes, we need both. I mean, I do think it's important that clergy, for the better want of a word, you know, do talk with each other at a local community level. But sometimes I think we need to be a little bit careful of those people who appoint themselves as the gatekeepers to communities and don't want their broader community to engage. And I think historically that has happened where you've had the worthies come speak and sit on a panel and talk, but actually the communities never do meet each other. And I think there is a much more granular level which is in the sometimes referred to as the dialogue of the everyday. We need to be seeing that development. And I think one of the ways that that's actually changing nationally is the development of workplace faith and multi-faith networks, where people in the workplace with their colleagues can sit down and talk about their own faith and what matters to them and learn from and listen to others about their faith and What they're not necessarily doing is representing their whole tradition, but what they're doing is representing themselves as part of that tradition to another. And that builds up not only sort of a community of understanding, it also then enables a community of change to form from that as well. So I think it's happening at all sorts of levels. And one of the ways we've seen that are things like 
interfaith activity around sports clubs. There was a great project in um, Manchester who started with near neighbours and then moved to Fodip, which got women from very strict religious backgrounds, Muslim, Christian and Jewish, who would never do sport in the presence of men, to do sport together. And they've done some fantastic stuff. So I just remember that David mentioned the importance of workplace-based sort of faith encounters. And I think that's absolutely crucial because for many people in this country, the only time they ever meet somebody of a different faith background is in the workplace. We tend to choose our friends. We can't do much about our family. But the workplace is where we are thrown in together with people who may or may not be like us. And there's a real place and opportunity to get to know the other, whoever the other is. There was a very helpful reflection by Jonathan Sachs, I have a shalom, uh, in his Politics of Hope, where one of the things he talked about, why Sunday should remain special, and he said, because what's happening is virtually all of our relationships with people other than our family tend to be transactional. So there are people in my community that I only ever meet because they're at the checkout And that actually what we need to do is create a community space where people meet together as people. And that's something I think we've lost from our society. And I think a lot of our social institutions, and this was pre-pandemic, a lot of our social institutions have effectively collapsed because people no longer belong to things. They don't belong to the local political party. They don't belong to their trade union. They don't go down to the pub, you know, where they just meet other people as other people. Jonathan Sachs uses uh, Hampstead Heath as an example of where people just meet because it's a place where people meet and we've lost that. So workplaces, I think Kitty's right, workplaces have become more important and significant as the space where suddenly we're likely to be confronted with somebody who is different to ourselves, who we have to get on with. We've moved from the sort of Hobbesian model of the best way to avoid conflict is not to talk about anything that is controversial. So the sort of the John Locke model, where actually we need to build tolerance because we need to live with each other and we do that by understanding each other. Cultural structure, the big ideas which inform our lives and our culture are incredibly powerful as drivers for behaviour. There is a discussion at a socio-cultural level as to whether that's appropriate. You know, there's a transformative aspect to culture does change over time. The question is, what are those big ideas within that cultural structure, which then would make things obvious for people? And I think as we become a more multicultural society, it becomes more obvious that we need to deal with that in a positive way. And that has, at a socio-cultural level, an impact around how then people go about the way that they live their lives and what they do. But that's an incredibly long process. It's not something that's achieved overnight because cultural change happens on the whole very, very slowly. Even when it looks like it's changed very quickly, very often what you find is that you've just replaced some institutions with others, but actually the big ideas are already there. You talked about how slowly the change occurs. And earlier you touched on Bosnia. And like you, I've spent a little bit of time there and I'm doing a little bit of work on it at the moment. The country is beginning to go through further worrying stages with further polarisation. And of course, when change like that happens, it happens dramatically quickly. 
it doesn't wait for structural generational shifts. People can collapse in terms of relationships, in terms of generating hostility, incredibly quickly. So what do we do in that situation? One of the things that struck me, just to put it out there and then leave it to you for the final word, is the complexity of the relationships that's not taken into account. And if a number of factors come together, not just issues of religion, but social, economic, ideological, political, as well as religious stroke theological, if they come together in a harmful and damaging way, that sets the scene for a Bosnian-type disaster and destruction. But when that happens, we don't have much time. Yeah, I would agree. And I think the same you could apply to Rwanda as well and other places. When I talk about cultural change being slow, it doesn't mean to say that things can't happen suddenly in a crisis. And I don't think Archer would be arguing that either, because it's obvious from the evidence that it can. And I think what is difficult, and I think if you look at the situation in Bosnia-Herzegovina, is that you need strong voices from different faith communities. I think part of the problem that we misunderstand, just to go back a little bit, is that if you look at the Ottoman Empire, religious communities were seen as ethnic communities. So if I was an Orthodox Christian and I converted to Islam, I'd actually stop being a Serb. I'd now be a Turk. That's how it was viewed. And therefore, where religion and identity are actually so sewn into each other and into communal structures and identities, that's when it can become really dangerous. And I don't think we understood that when we looked at Bosnia. I don't think we understood that when Daesh was sweeping up the Nineveh plain, that actually Christians in Iraq are ethnic groups. And therefore, I think you're right. What we need to do is we need to take into account the complexity of the relationship between class, race, ethnicity, religion, and understand those holistically. That actually interfaith dialogue deals with interfaith issues, and that's really important. But other things need to happen as well if there's going to be a better outcome for society as a whole. Well, you've you've touched on the complexity of it all. And to be perfectly honest, this is something that I just sometimes find overwhelming. It's just so complicated. There are these ethnic considerations, religious considerations, cultural considerations. And of course, they all intersect as well. I mean, you know, brave is the person that tries to sort of distinguish what is a religious artifact and what is a cultural artifact. It's very hard to do. And in some cases, it might not even be possible. So interfaith dialogue is admirable. I think, and should be applauded for these incredibly complicated tasks that it's taking on. And yes, people may sort of sniff at it from a secular viewpoint and sort of go, well, what's the point? You know, religion is pointless anyway. But actually, globally, that's not the case. So interfaith dialogue is important in a growingly religiously pluralistic world. I think it should be applauded for tackling these incredibly complicated issues. Um, And it may not always work. The point is that it offers the best chance that we have, I think. There we must leave it. Thanks to my guests, Kitty Alone and David Hampshire, and thanks to you two for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? There's a diverse range of topics, and they're all available for your listening pleasure. You may also want to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more bracing discussion and some new guests.